Hey there, Amy Gastelum here. Before we start the show, I just want to make a quick request to rate us, follow us, and subscribe to Making Contact on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. Making, making, making contact. Making contact. <laughs> I'm Anita Johnson, and this is Making Contact. This week on our show, we're bringing you an episode from our partners at 70 Million about the grand jury system. Grand juries are supposed to safeguard the legal rights of individuals and ensure the fairness of the criminal justice system. However, oftentimes, the prosecutors have significant control over the grand jury proceedings. They decide which evidence is presented, and they can influence the outcomes of the cases. In this episode, we're going to hear about a police brutality case in Dallas that dissolved after going before a grand jury. And we'll take a look at the grand jury system in the U.S. Here's reporter Mark Bettencourt with the story. Back in November 2021, Jansen Verastiki, Dondi Morris, and Parker Nevels were sitting at a restaurant in Dallas, Texas, and they were trying to decompress. They had just testified in front of a grand jury. They were testifying about something that happened the year before, in May of 2020, while they were protesting against police brutality in the wake of George Floyd's murder. During the protest, a Dallas police officer, Roger Rudloff, shot Jansen in the chest with pepper balls. That's a kind of less lethal weapon. Rudloff also kneed Parker in the belly before he and other officers arrested them. They saw this treatment as brutal and unnecessary, especially in the context of why they were there that day. After more than a year of trying to hold Rudloff accountable, they finally had the chance to tell their story to a grand jury, fellow citizens who would decide whether he would be charged with a crime. Here's Parker. Going in, I was pretty optimistic. Um, coming out, I was like, I don't... I, I don't know. And here's Jansen and Dondi, who were together when I interviewed them about that day. That was supposed to be big, right? It was supposed to be the end-all, be-all. <laughs> you think it's going to be like what you would see on TV, naively and, you know, stupidly, but um, it, it was not that at all. There's no checks and balances. It was, I mean, it, it always was what it was going to be. I don't know why they even ask for testimony. Jansen and Dondi and Parker had been thinking of the grand jury as a big deal. In Texas, all felonies have to be brought before a grand jury before they can be tried. If the Dallas County District Attorney, John Crusoe, brought the case to the grand jury, they hoped it was because he thought Rudloff was guilty of a felony and should be brought to trial and punished. After all, that's what prosecutors do. They try to win cases against people they think have committed crimes. The grand jury is supposed to be a check on that power, they're supposed to make sure that prosecutors are acting fairly. In this episode, we'll talk about how grand juries can't do that job very well anymore, how they've actually become a tool of prosecutors, including when the accused person before them is a police officer. Before we go back to the beginning of Jansen and Parker and Dondi's story, let's establish what a grand jury is. A group of citizens, anywhere from 5 to 23 of them, who decide whether there's enough evidence to try a criminal case in court. That decision is called an indictment. 
It tells the prosecutor there's probable cause to charge a person with a crime. Not that they're guilty, just that they might be. Grand jury is one of the oldest institutions we have in the criminal justice system. They are over a thousand years old. Even before we had trial juries, we had grand juries. Rick Simmons is a law professor at Ohio State University's Moritz College of Law and an expert on grand juries. He also used to be a prosecutor in New York City. There's a famous case right before the American Revolution uh, where someone, uh, an American colonist, essentially published some uh, anti-British stuff in a pamphlet. Uh, British prosecutor tried to go after him. The grand jury stopped that. That became a, a big cause. That's why the grand jury was written into our Constitution. Federal prosecutors, along with 48 states and the District of Columbia, use grand juries. In 20 of those states and D.C., grand juries are mandatory in certain cases. The rest leave it up to prosecutors whether to use them. If they don't use a grand jury, prosecutors have to establish probable cause in what's called a preliminary hearing before a judge. Unlike trial juries, grand juries don't need to reach a unanimous decision. In Texas, for example, only nine of the 12 jurors need to agree to indict. The other big difference, there's no defense attorney. There's no judge. It's just the grand jury and the prosecutor. Rick says that's become a problem. If the prosecutor wants to indict a case, uh, they can easily indict the case by bringing it to grand jury, presenting what we call a bare-bones presentation, uh, only one side of the case, and then if they want that indictment, they can get it. Case in point, virtually all federal grand jury cases end in indictment, which brings us back to prosecutors holding police accountable for breaking the law. prosecutors a choice about what to do when they get a police brutality case or a police lethal use of force case. Um, they can essentially present a, the same sort of bare-bones, uh, pro-prosecution, rubber-stamp case that they always present in, uh, to normal cases, get the indictment, and move forward. That doesn't happen very often because the prosecutor wants to use the grand jury uh, sort of as a tool to avoid accountability. So what instead we sometimes see is a prosecutor presenting almost a pro-defense case to the grand jury. In other words, it's rigged. Like a lot of people in the United States, Jansen and her friends suspected as much. But they were shocked by the obstacles put in their way. They didn't know about those obstacles because grand jury proceedings are totally secret. More on that later. Jansen's dad is Mexican and her mom's white. She's the mother of two adopted sons who are black. She's been active at all kinds of social justice protests, including for women's rights and gay rights and for racial equality. But when George Floyd was murdered by a police officer in Minneapolis on May 25th, 2020, she felt it was especially urgent to get out and make her voice heard. She decided to join the protest forming in downtown Dallas later that week. She wanted her boys, who were two and four at the time, to come with her. Just like having that conversation, you know, like, unfortunately, people don't treat you how they treat mommy. And, you know, we're going to go. And, and the hopes is that we make people realize that that's, that's a real thing, you know, and how we can change that. Dondi is Jensen's best friend. And she's white. But she came to it from a similar place. Her daughter is Hispanic. We live in a predominantly white, affluent area. There's really no other way to put it. Um, so our kids have different experiences than most of the other kids that live in close proximity to us. So it's personal. No justice, no peace, no justice, no this sound was recorded by filmmaker Kurtz Frausen in downtown Dallas on Saturday, May 30th. 
the day Jansen and Dondi headed there to protest. Both had been to race-related protests before, but as soon as they got downtown, they were struck by the intensity of this one. It felt, I don't know, it just felt bigger than it had normally happened, right? This isn't the first time that something like this has happened. The mood has changed drastically. There are tanks in the streets. Every type of law enforcement imaginable is posted up on every corner of the street, and they're blocking off the streets. So the crowd is being kettled and and pushed in one direction. There's nowhere else for people to go. When the police blocked off streets, some protesters threw things at them or dragged signs and trash cans into the street. Jansen and Dondi say the police reacted as if everyone was hostile. I saw them screaming at people, tear gassing people, like in very close proximity. I mean, they were just roughing people up and there was really no rhyme or reason to it. It, It's just that it literally just looked like that's what they felt like doing, so that's what they did. It was like call of duty, literally. Dondi says the aggression was racially charged. I heard them use the term monkey. I heard them use the N-word repeatedly. In one body cam video, a protester is standing still in the street when a police officer shoots him at long range with a rubber bullet. Off camera, other officers laugh. And one says, good shot, sir. Eventually, Dondi says the police pushed the crowd toward the highway, Interstate 35. Some protesters decided to block traffic. Jansen and Dondi say they didn't go on to the highway. They stayed in a little grassy area to the side. But Parker was on the highway. He hadn't done much protesting before that day. He had actually come downtown to pick up the trash left behind by the protesters. We are doing, uh, like, completing the objective of cutting off traffic. Parker had his phone out recording video at the moment the police made their move. When the cops, they came over the median, and they just, like, uh, they straight up opened fire. The police were firing pepper balls, projectiles filled with a chemical powder or liquid that works like pepper spray. Hit! I immediately got hit right in the ankle, and it's... Oh, it's worse than getting hit with a paintball. Immediately start crying. You taste it. Your tongue feels like it's on fire. From their vantage point, Jansen and Dondi could see people suddenly running off the freeway onto the grassy area where they stood. A wave of cops come up over this hill, and we see these people, like they target this one small group of black people, right? And one of the women is actually being carried because she's been injured. She cannot walk, so there's two other people trying to help carry her. So we just took off running after them, like trying to yell at the cops and tell them, hey, she's injured. They're not doing anything wrong. You know, please lay off of them. And uh, that's not what happened. They had put a couple of people on the ground with their knees and their back. And it was just wild. And that's when the officer came up to me. I mean, and just immediately pointed his weapon at me. And I stopped dead in my tracks and put my hands up. The officer was Sergeant Roger Rudloff of the Dallas Police Department. According to records later unearthed by the Dallas Morning News, 
He'd been accused of beating two black men with a flashlight in separate incidents and choking a black woman. Since 1998, eight people had accused him of using inappropriate force on the job. Thirteen had accused him of making racist or abusive remarks. But he'd rarely been disciplined, let alone prosecuted. And now he was part of the wave of police throwing protesters to the ground. And he had a pepperball launcher aimed right at Jansen. It looked like a giant gun. I don't, you know, I'm not privy to that type of stuff. It looked terrifying and huge and like it could kill me, you know? Um, so I immediately put my hands up and was like, and said, I'm not moving. My hands are up. Um, and he screamed something, and I don't even remember what it was now. And it was just boom, boom, boom. Straight. Three pepper bullets to the chest. At that point in time, like, it took a second to realize, like, what it was and that I wasn't going to die because it hurt so bad. And it burned because it was, it's a pepper bullet, right? So it hits you and then essentially like explodes. So you can't breathe. I turned, like I grabbed my chest. I remember turning and falling and then put to, I remember like feeling his body like on top of me. And then he like zip ties and handcuffed me behind my back. And after he shot you, he turned and pointed at me and told me to get on the ground or I would be next. I got on the ground immediately and then started shouting at him. Parker didn't know Jansen or Dondi then, but he headed toward them for the same reason they'd headed toward the black protesters. I didn't know what I was going to do, what I wanted to do, but I started running up the service road, um, shouting, yelling some obscenities at the police that I think were warranted at, in the heat of the moment. A passing driver recorded video as Parker approached, screaming at the police. Then you can hear Rudloff telling Jansen to stay on the ground as she screams that she can't breathe. Rudloff sees me, he turns to me, and he starts, like, marching over towards me. Get on the ground! It was like a surreal moment, you know? I was like, this is exactly why I'm here, right? And this is exactly what they do to people. They just don't use pepper bullets on black people, right? And I have black kids. So this situation looks vastly different for them. And yeah, I mean, I just remember being scared. And I remember screaming at them like, this is exactly why we're here. Exactly how y'all are acting is exactly why we're here. The police arrested Jansen, Dondi, and Parker and dozens of other people in the area and piled them into vans. Why are we being arrested? Why? And they never would answer. They didn't even know why we were there when we finally arrived at the jail. They spent a night in jail packed in with other protesters during the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. They made bail the next morning. Even now, it's not clear what they were charged with. It was either riot participation or obstruction of a roadway. But those charges were later dropped. Like, it was a traumatic experience. So it took a, a little bit to decide what to do next. I absolutely felt like someone needed to be held accountable and that people needed to know what happened. They began by getting a lawyer, David Henderson. There's no such thing as a good police brutality case. I say that because overwhelmingly the police get away with misconduct and the law doesn't do much to hold them accountable. David had worked in the Bear County District Attorney's Office and then turned to private practice doing civil rights law. He was working on a class action case against the Dallas Police Department for arresting people who were peacefully exercising their First Amendment rights during the 2020 protests. 
His team was also representing protesters who had been harmed by the police. And I was honest with our clients, I think it's an uphill battle, especially in this part of the country, but it looked like a case we wanted to be involved with because of the severity of what happened. David helped Jansen, Dondi, and Parker submit formal complaints to the Dallas Police Department about Sergeant Rudloff's behavior at the protest. That triggered an internal police investigation. Rudloff told the Dallas Morning News he shot Jansen because she didn't follow his instructions. His lawyer claimed she had acted aggressively toward him. Despite the fact that there were photographs, video, and several eyewitnesses of the incident, the police department dropped its investigation. But the district attorney, the county prosecutor who has the power to charge people with crimes, could still do his own investigation. At first, David was optimistic. Initially, the DA contacted our clients and said that he wanted to know what happened. In that regard, I thought it was promising that you'd likely see some accountability from the police officers because he didn't have to reach out to them and do that. John Crusoe, the Dallas County District Attorney, is part of a wave of progressive prosecutors elected across the country in recent years. He promised not to prosecute people for stealing necessary items like baby formula or for first-time marijuana possession. And he's gone after police for inappropriate use of force before. After the police dropped their investigation and after Jansen's story started getting a lot of press coverage, Crusoe announced he was pressing felony charges against Sergeant Rudloff. That meant the case would go before a grand jury. Jansen, Dondi, and Parker each got a call from an investigator at the district attorney's office asking if they'd be willing to testify. He phrased it like I had a choice. Um, but he was like, would you like to be a witness in the grand jury for, uh, against the case of Rudloff tomorrow? Um, and I'm like, tomorrow? It seemed like short notice for a case that was a year and a half old. But Parker wanted to see Sergeant Rudloff held accountable. And he didn't really have a choice. The grand jury could subpoena him if he refused. In eight hours, I'm going to be at the courthouse. I'm like, what am I supposed to do? I called my mom, and, like, my voice was shaking. David would not be allowed in the hearing, and he couldn't do much to prepare Parker, Dondi, and Jansen. The first rule we tell them is tell the truth and just make sure that you are open with the grand jury, that you answer their questions, and that you explain things to the best of your ability. The only other guidance they got was from an investigator from the DA's office just before they went in to testify. He came out and gave us a pep talk, you know, told us what the expectations were just in terms of super secrecy. And (laughs) that's literally the term that he used, that everything that transpires in there is super secret. We're not permitted to speak about it with anyone. Grand juries have been secret proceedings for hundreds of years. The secrecy started as a way to protect the reputation of the accused— The secrecy was also meant to prevent witness tampering. Even in trial juries, which aren't secret, that rarely happens. So what we're left with is this process that hands a lot of power to prosecutors to direct grand jury proceedings with very little public scrutiny of how they do that. Jansen and Dondi and Parker were about to cross into that secret world. And the first thing they saw there blindsided them. When each of them walked into the hearing room and sat down at a witness stand, they saw a blue and white sign posted right in front of them so that only they could see it. It read, do not mention race while testifying. It was was shocking. Um, And it's like, that's the, why I went out there, you know? Um, Because a black man was 
unjustly murdered by the police. And so that that sign, it was just like, what what the hell are we here for? Suddenly, they had to edit out a big part of their testimony while they were giving it. He would get asked a question, and I would have an answer immediately, but then I'm like, I've got to rephrase this answer. It was shocking and bizarre. Each of them testified for only about half an hour. Then the investigator from the DA's office led them outside. He was worried that we were going to get caught up with the press because there was press outside of the courtroom. So he was actually trying to usher us out a back way. Waiting outside was Miles Moffat, a reporter from the Dallas Morning News, who had been publishing story after story about the case. They figured he should know about the sign, that everyone should know about it. But they'd just been sworn to super secrecy. At the end of the day, like, we're... we're active participant, like, members of society, right? I have a great life. I'd like to keep it that way, you know? I don't need to run in with the police. Also, don't want to get in trouble. But then, like, you don't know what to do, you know? Like, um, I think it's important that people know about this procedure because it, it discredits so much. They should know. I was terrified. I mean, I was like, could we possibly get arrested for this? Could we be in trouble for this? Revealing what happens in a grand jury proceeding can come with contempt of court charges and a fine or even jail time. David says that because it's not about the substance of the hearing they testified in, they couldn't get in trouble for talking about the sign. But the super-secrecy talk they'd had before testifying gave them pause. It wasn't enough to stop them. They went out the front of the building straight to Miles and told him about the sign. Later, he found his way into the hearing room and snapped a photo of it. While they were doing the mental gymnastics of editing themselves, Jansen, Dondi, and Parker had also wondered whether the sign was normal. Was it always there or only for certain cases? Who put it there? Did the members of the grand jury know about the sign and that it was the reason they were stumbling through their testimony? David wondered too. We've asked these questions to people throughout the process. We received different answers from different people at different times. David was even more in the dark, not being allowed in the proceeding. The DA, when asked about the sign in the grand jury room telling witnesses not to mention race. The initial answer I expected to hear was, we put this sign up here to make sure that there's no bias during grand jury proceedings when information is being presented by prosecutors or police officer witnesses. But that's not what the response was. The response seemed to be, I don't know, like from Scooby-Doo, right? No one knows who put it there or when or why or what impact it's having on grand jury proceedings. It seems like a small thing, the sign. But in Jansen's case, it made a big difference. Or at least they thought it might. The thing is, the public hadn't known about the sign or how many testimonies had been altered because of it, because of the veil of secrecy around the grand jury. The sign is just one of many procedural details in grand jury rooms all over the country that we know nothing about. Rick Simmons, the grand jury expert at Ohio State, says that's a big part of the power we give to prosecutors. When a prosecutor does present a case to a grand jury, we don't know what the prosecutor told the grand jury. Uh, so when the prosecutor comes out afterwards and says, well, the grand jury didn't indict, we don't know what kind of case uh, they brought unless uh, the, the state has some kind of sunshine law or uh, some way to get at those records. The federal government and most states don't have grand jury sunshine laws. But some states allow the airing of grand jury materials, including evidence and testimony, when it's in the public interest. David thinks in this case, the secrecy of grand juries gave D.A. Crusoe a pass. Initially, it seemed like he cared. I have to believe that's why he was reaching out to people. 
Over the course of the investigation, though, it seemed like he was interested in making it seem like he cared, but wasn't actually prepared to do anything. And we've seen that consistently from his office when it comes to any version of police misconduct. He will say he cares that he wants to do something about it, but he never actually takes action. That behavior to me indicates that you wanted to hide behind the grand jury the entire time. I tried to ask D.A. Cruzeau to respond to these criticisms, but he declined to talk to me. In an email, his spokesperson would say only that, quote, it is a policy of the Dallas County District Attorney's Office that all officer involved and security guard shooting cases, as well as death and custody cases, be presented to a grand jury for their independent consideration. I ran that by Rick in an email, and he responded that he thinks that could be a good policy, always letting a grand jury decide in police shooting cases. But it doesn't mean much unless the prosecutor explicitly and intentionally gives the grand jury that power by presenting a complete case. Because prosecutors can use their secrecy as political cover, some say grand juries should be abolished altogether. Why not let prosecutors, who ultimately have to try cases, decide whether to press charges, and in the full light of day? And that's at a full proceeding with a defense attorney, um, the defendant's present, as allowed to testify, defense attorney cross-examines prosecutor's witnesses, and you have a judge or a magistrate who is overseeing it, who makes their own decision about whether or not probable cause exists. But, Rick says, the problem isn't really grand juries. It's prosecutors. Now when we criticize the grand jury for uh, police brutality or lethal use of force cases, it's ironic because the grand jury is not meant to, you know, bring charges when we want them to bring charges. It's meant to prevent prosecutors from bringing charges when they shouldn't. The public prosecutor over that in the last century has gotten more respect, more responsibility, more power, and we've been okay with that. Whoever we are as a society have decided we don't need that kind of check. We have essentially the fulcrum of the whole criminal justice system is on the prosecutor. Rick says some of the special rules around grand juries are part of what makes them vulnerable to manipulation by the prosecutor. Some states allow jurors to hear evidence that would be inadmissible in a trial court. For example, some let police reports stand as evidence without a witness present to back them up. Some let prosecutors bring charges to a grand jury multiple times until they get the result they want. But those rules aren't set in stone. There's nothing in the Constitution about grand juries being secret or that there can't be an attorney present to oppose the prosecutor. State legislators, elected lawmakers, have the power to change all of that. Strengthening the grand jury, or for that matter, abolishing it, would be one way to hold prosecutors accountable for charging defendants in the first place. And either one would force the prosecutor to present his or her evidence uh, at, an, at an early stage of the proceeding before a plea bargain and would help to ensure that people aren't put into that plea bargaining system unless they actually are likely did commit a crime. And if these reforms were put in place, especially if grand jury proceedings were more transparent, prosecutors might be more likely to do in police abuse cases what they do in other cases, try to convince the grand jury that a crime has been committed. When they left the courthouse, Jansen, Dondi, and Parker were told it would take a week to hear a decision from the grand jury. We all went out for uh, drinks afterwards um, to decompress, and uh, we get a call from the, the DA's office pretty within, like, two hours, I want to say. And uh, they, they gave us the result. And he was like, you know, I regret to inform you that, unfortunately— the jury decided not to indict Redluff. And I just 
I mean, I just immediately, like, started crying. A few months after the grand jury heard Jansen's case, District Attorney Cruzeau charged three more Dallas-area police officers for their conduct during the 2020 protests. One is accused of shooting a protester in the face with a rubber bullet, shattering his cheekbone and partially blinding him. Another protester lost an eye and seven teeth when one of the officers allegedly shot him in the face with a rubber bullet. The grand jury chose to indict all three of the officers. But David doesn't see that as a win for protesters. In the end, only the most egregious cases are going to be pursued. But that's basically what happened here in Dallas, Texas. There won't be any more indictments. The statute of limitations for potential assault charges against police officers for their conduct during the 2020 protests expired in May of 2022. That was Mark Betancourt reporting on Grand Juries, The Black Box of Justice Reform, from the podcast 70 Million. For more information about today's program and Grand Juries, visit us at radioproject.org. I'm Anita Johnson. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.